Well, it is certainly good to be with you here this morning. And this is going to be the final week of our study in exploring the Sermon on the Mount. That is this sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I hope that you all have enjoyed sort of taking this journey with me as much as I have enjoyed sort of studying, preparing, and teaching it with all of you. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have a Bible this morning, you're welcome to open up to Matthew 7 or If you have an app on your phone that has a Bible, you're welcome to to get there as well. And the sermon is going to be perhaps a little different this morning because it's not going to just focus in on our text that we'll be reading, but as a sort of conclusion of this series, we're going to hopefully have in mind all that Jesus had taught throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read Matthew 7, verses 21 through 29. It's perhaps, to me, in my studies of Jesus' teaching, one of the scariest teachings that Jesus has for religious folk and those who claim to be his followers. So with trepidation and anticipation, let's turn to Jesus' words this morning. He concludes his sermon this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And here's the verse that's... Then I will return to them, those who prophesied in my name, those who perform miracles in my name, those who cast out demons in my name. I'm going to turn to them plainly and say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Father, give us the grace that we need to have ears to hear your word afresh and anew this day, and give us the courage and the strength to become the types of followers and disciples that you require us to be. Amen, amen. I want to begin this message this morning a little bit differently, and we're not going to track along the notes as clearly as we typically do because I decided to rewrite my sermon on Thursday afternoon, so that's great, but... (laughs) It's awesome. But I want to begin this way. I'll kind of give you the map of where it is that we're going. We're going to start, and I'm going to give you five reasons why you probably shouldn't come to church anymore. Five reasons why following Jesus will mess up your life, and you might consider not following Jesus because of it. Then we'll focus a little bit on the passage this morning, and then I want to tell you a story about wedding vows and cancer, and then we're going to take communion, and it's going to be a full, full morning here at the powerhouse. But five reasons why you shouldn't come to church anymore. Five reasons why you should consider not following Jesus. The first one is this. 
is that if you begin to follow Jesus according at least to the way Jesus wants you to follow, if you follow him, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that you cannot be indifferent to suffering. Is that if you follow Jesus, you will be a person who cannot be indifferent to the pain and suffering of this world. Jesus, if you can recall, begins the Sermon on the Mount with what we know as the Beatitudes, those blessed be statements. He doesn't begin, it's, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't begin his sermon the way everybody wants pastors to begin their sermons, some sort of comedic thought, some sort of story to draw you in. Jesus goes zero to 100, straight into his points, like right there at the beginning. And what we discover in the Beatitudes is that those who follow Jesus, they're really interesting people. They not only see, but act on behalf of those who suffer in the world. In the Beatitudes, we discover that the disciples of Jesus become people who mourn for those who suffer. They're emotionally moved when they see pain and suffering in the world, when they see brokenness and injustice in the world, it stirs them emotionally. In the Beatitudes, we learn that the disciples of Jesus, they, they use all of their life to extend into the world acts of mercy and justice because the world is afflicted with injustice. In the Beatitudes, we learn that the disciples of Jesus, they don't run away from conflict. They're actually peacemakers in a world that is filled with conflict. In the Beatitudes, we discover that the disciples of Jesus are those who engage in compassionate action on behalf of those who are hurting in the world. In the Beatitudes, we learn that the disciples of Jesus may, in fact, even suffer themselves because they care so much about injustice and suffering in the world. That is... The disciples of Jesus, are, they are not indifferent to suffering, brokenness, and hurt that they see in the world. This doesn't make us sort of melancholic sort of group that see the world, you know, like with a half-empty sort of lens. But we just see the world, the disciples of Jesus, they see the world honestly. And the honest way of looking at the world is that there is brokenness and suffering and pain and injustice that exists everywhere. The disciples of Jesus cannot be indifferent to that. It means that disciple of Jesus doesn't hear the news of their co-worker's divorce and merely pass it on to their next co-worker, right? Did you hear about Tom and Cindy? I got some juicy tea for you. Rather, they sit over lunch and cry in the midst of that pain and agony and suffering. They sit in that hole with their friends and neighbors it means that the disciples of Jesus, when hearing that students and teachers lack basic supplies for the school year, they pack backpacks of pencils, scissors, and crayons. It means that when they hear of an elderly person in their community who spends most of their time alone, they go and share meals with them and are present to them in conversation. It, it means that when they hear about companies that utilize unjust business practices to manufacture products, they refuse to support them. It means that when they hear about people who do not have access to clean drinking water in the world, they give their money to projects that give access to those who need this basic human necessity. Christians and Christian disciples are not to be indifferent to suffering they cannot try to solve all of the world's problems for sure. They can't. They're not God. We are limited in our capacities and resources, but not being able to do everything doesn't keep the disciple of Jesus from doing anything. And so if 
you want to be indifferent to suffering and pain and hurt and the messiness that is people's lives, you probably shouldn't follow Jesus because following Jesus means your weekends and evenings and money will be utilized for something that's gonna solve and be present with those who are suffering and hurt in the world. You cannot be indifferent to suffering if you're a disciple of Jesus. But the second reason why you should consider not coming to church or following Jesus is that you will have to change the way that you think. You have to change the way that you think. If you can recall back in the Sermon on the Mount, there's this long section in the sermon where Jesus upends the common knowledge of those who heard his teaching. He he has this whole series of sayings that begin with, you have heard that it was said, fill in the blank, but I say to you, See, Jesus, in that moment, he's informing his disciples that what they think is wrong. What you have heard from your scholars and your experts isn't exactly the truth that I have come to deliver to you. What you have heard and come to believe is not correct. The things that have informed your way of life, perhaps for decades, and have influenced the decisions that you're making in your life today, those are not exactly true. And when you follow Jesus, what you discover is that there are patterns of thinking and ways of perceiving the world that you have that are flat out wrong. When you follow Jesus, you discover that some notions and ideas that you have held, that you've aligned your life with because you thought they were true, they're wrong. And you might even discover, (laughs) hopefully not here, Things you heard from pastors and religious teachers and Bible teachers are not accurate of the gospel and the kingdom that he came to bring in the world. This doesn't mean that Jesus is the only resource by which we know things. All truth is God's truth wherever it comes from after all. It's just that Jesus can change the categories by which we think about things. You see, in following Jesus, you might discover that this thing that we call Christianity isn't just about doing all of the right religious activities. Come to church, learn the songs, serve in the children's ministry, read your Bible. It actually might, in fact, be about who it is that you are becoming and the things that you love and desire. It might, in fact, be about your heart. In following Jesus, you might discover that this Christianity thing isn't primarily about going to heaven. It might, in fact, be about that thing that Jesus invites us to pray, to bring heaven to earth. That might be the central thing that the gospel is about. In following Jesus, you might discover that the things you've most valued, the things that you've made most important in your life are actually just distractions to things that actually matter and things that should actually be important in your life. In following Jesus, you will have to change the way you think. This requires a certain level of humility and willingness to learn and openness to change. And trust me, it's so much easier, right? (laughs) Just to be resolved in the way that you think now. Certainly nothing that you think is wrong. Everybody else is wrong. It's so much easier just to keep thinking the way that you're thinking. But in following Jesus, you will change. He will change the way that you think. The third reason, though, why you probably shouldn't follow Jesus is that you will begin to love indiscriminately. You will begin to love indiscriminately in the world. One of the most radical things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that we are to love our enemies. We are to show kindness to those who 
wrong us. In the church, we often reduce this teaching of Jesus to the level that sort of like it's that bumper sticker slogan. We love our enemies and we just love like that. You know, that's just a really nice thing to say. But this isn't just a nice thing to say. This is a radical requirement of the gospel. Loving our enemies was, in fact, Jesus' way of saying, you have to love everyone. That is, we don't get to choose those to whom we show kindness and compassion and generosity. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter what kind of status they have. The disciple of Jesus loves indiscriminately. The disciple of Jesus shows kindness to those who show them cruelty. The disciple of Jesus has the strength not to retaliate to the person who has hurt them, but instead pray for them. The disciple of Jesus somehow, well, by the grace of God, somehow like Jesus, as he hung on the cross, can forgive those who've given them their deepest wounds even when they hadn't asked for it yet. And this kind of love for people is messy. See, so often we talk about love and love of enemies as if it was a tool or resource which was definitely going to change people, right? And so this becomes a strategy of the church. We're going to love people till we change them. But sometimes what you learn when you love indiscriminately like this, people don't, they don't change. Sometimes when you love like Jesus loves, it doesn't have the effect that you were hoping it was going to have on somebody's life. Just look at the way Jesus lived. Did his love change everybody? No, he was executed. But the disciple of Jesus is somehow captured by the hope that in the end, love wins. That it will not be violence, it will not be force, it will not be the powers of this world, but it will be love that wins in the end. There's a radical hopefulness. And so the disciple of Jesus loves indiscriminately friend, foreigner, or foe. The fourth reason, though, why you probably shouldn't be a Christian and why you should consider not following Jesus is that you will not get credit for your life. You will not get credit for your life. And we love getting credit, don't we? We love putting our name on the project that succeeds. See, what we discover in the Sermon on the Mount, that for the disciple of Jesus, God is the one who is glorified by their life. Earlier in the sermon, Jesus says as much. He says, people will see your good deeds and praise you. No, praise your Father in heaven. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demands a practice of spirituality that is done in secret. No one will ever see the discipline that you have exercised in your spiritual life. No one will see your giving. No one should see your prayer life. No one should see your fasting. No one will see all of those small disciplines that you've implemented into your life day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. You get credit for none of it. They will only ever see the fruit of your faith. And in seeing the fruit, they will praise God and not you. You see, the hope for the disciple of Jesus is not to be honored or admired in the church. It isn't to have plaques and recognition within the community of faith. It isn't to be singled out for being exceptional. Rather, the hope of the Christian woman and man is to live so much like Jesus that people know that you couldn't have done it in your own strength, right? 
It is to live so closely and to walk so intensely in the grace of God that even you know you couldn't live the life that you're living apart from your relying on him. If you can recall, several weeks ago, I shared this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which makes this same point where he says this. He says, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. There should be something so radical about the way the disciple of Jesus lives that it causes people to question if they're doing life the right way or not. It is our integrity, our control of our negative emotions, our generosity, our humility, our values, our trust in God, our peace, our care for the suffering. These things should reveal not to the world not our own kindness, but the kindness of God that is being expressed in and through us. You will not get credit. You should not get credit for your life if you are a follower of Jesus. But here's the fifth and final reason, and there might be more. There could be more. I don't know. This is just what I see in the Sermon on the Mount. You shouldn't be a follower of Jesus because the way of Jesus will encompass all of your life. All of your life. You see, there can be a tendency within the church, at least I've noticed, and perhaps even in my own life, that, that we want Jesus and Christian faith to be the addition that we build onto our house, right? We have a nice home, things are going well, things are going great, and we've discovered this bonus room that we could just sort of attach and take up part of the backyard, and it will be really nice. That room is probably not one that we're going to be, you know, dwelling in constantly, It's going to be that one that we invite people to come hang out in when they come visit our house for the weekend. But this room is not going to be the focal point of our day-to-day lives. It's not a kitchen. It's not a bedroom. But it's just this bonus room that we have in our house. We occasionally vacuum it just to keep it clean. But here's the thing. Jesus does not want to be an addition onto the house that is your life. Jesus doesn't want to be a room. He calls his disciples to make him the foundation, the end of the text this morning, right? Jesus calls his disciples to build every square inch of their lives on his life. Jesus demands that his disciples organize, structure, and build the totality of their lives on him. Your work, your relationships, where you live, how you speak, how you use your resources, all of it is built On the way of Jesus, these types of commitments are huge. I remember when Paige and I, it's my wife for those who may not know, we have Levi. This is our only son. He's two and the cutest human to ever walk on the planet. (laughs) Not biased, just totally objective about that one. When we had him, I had no clue. I could not fully appreciate how this one... (laughs) tiny little person was going to impact every aspect of our family's life. Truly, I, I had no appreciation for that, like at all. I thought my parents were born to serve me in my world, right? And when you have one, right, they're just kind of like, this is my trophy. I got to walk around, you know, he's my fish that I get to show people. But my work hours, my alone time with my wife, How long that we can hang out with our friends some evenings. Having to eat on a schedule now. He wants to eat breakfast every day. There's no skipping breakfast when you have 
a two-year-old, eating balanced meals because I have to give him healthy balanced meals. I guess I got to eat balanced meals now. You can't eat what I eat. That's not good for a person. (laughs) Whether we move to Ventura or not, how much our health insurance costs. Paige even tells me from time to time, she's like, you need to start working out so that you can see as much of Levi's life as possible, right? There's just no part of my life. And, and we had a good family friend that gave us great advice that we tried to adhere to. She said to us, she said, remember who's moving in with whom. That is, make sure that you don't build your life around them, but you got to sort of assimilate them into the rhythm of life of your household and family. And we've done our best to do that, but... As we've done that, we realize that he just touches every part of our lives. And here's the question. If this is how a single tiny baby can impact the whole of our lives, how much more does the Lord of creation want to encompass the totality of our lives? Everything. This is why you may want to stop coming to church. See, the way of Jesus is an all-encompassing way of life. And this is what we're trying to do here. This is what the Powerhouse Church is trying to do as a community of faith, is to follow in the way of Jesus. A life that transforms your mind and your thinking. A life that is not indifferent to suffering. A life that loves indiscriminately. A life that isn't about you. A life that is entirely about Jesus. This is what we're trying to do as a church to you. There's a tendency you see in church communities for people to think, and here's where your notes might kick in a little bit, that this thing that we call faith and this thing that we call Christianity is all about having the right beliefs and it's all about increasing our religious knowledge. See, we see and we identify how challenging the way of Jesus actually is. And so what we, we are inclined to do is to make this whole thing a lot easier for ourselves. So if we just say all the right answers, if we have all the right knowledge, and we say and confess all the right things about Jesus, then we're living as faithful disciples, right? Because this is so much easier than following in the way of Jesus. We see even in our text this morning at times that there's a church and a people who on top of having the right beliefs and increasing their knowledge of Bible stories, they're looking for incredible experiences in church. They're looking for those experiences that that are supernatural, like the casting out of demons or the healing of people who are sick. They're looking for great preachers and teachers who can prophesy powerful things in the name of Jesus. And we think by being in a church community that has the right teaching and the right experiences, they profess the right beliefs, they're increasing our head knowledge about Jesus, that we're following Jesus well. But people who think this way, right, they're not entirely off basis. We find in the New Testament that you have to profess the right things about Jesus, that he is Lord. This is the beginning of those who would follow in the way of Jesus. We see that that increase in knowledge and the will and wisdom of God is a sign and a marker of spiritual maturity. We see in Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the early church prophesying and casting out demons and performing miracles. These elements certainly have a place in the church, but they are not the ultimate thing to which the disciples of Jesus are called to. What we discover is that we are ultimately called to know and obey Jesus. 
We are called to know and obey Jesus. I like the way the great reformer Martin Luther put it. He writes, his doctrine is a good and precious thing, but it is not being preached for the sake of being heard, but for the sake of action and its application to life. You see, the big differentiating factor between the wise person and the foolish person is the wise person hears and does the things that Jesus says. And the foolish person hears and does not do the things that Jesus commanded. And what we want to be, this church, are wise people who hear and do and obey the things that Jesus said. And as we do, According to Jesus, we are people who live wisely. We, as Jesus mentioned earlier, this is how we become the salt and light in the world. As our beliefs and knowledge are embodied and expressed in our living, the kingdom of God breaks into the world in a beautiful and surprising way. And when people see it, they see God. When they see it, they see God. And maybe this is the most compelling reason why it is you ought to follow Jesus. Because the invitation to you is to live a life that reveals to the world the goodness and glory of God. But it requires our obedience and embodying that which Jesus taught. When I was in high school, I didn't know my parents were going to be here this morning uh, when I used this illustration, but they're here. So they're like a live illustration here. When I was in high school, my dad was diagnosed and treated for prostate cancer. And it took quite a toll on him physically. Um, It's always strange. I don't know if you know this experience. When you see your parents suffering because they're supposed to be invincible, right? Nothing is supposed to stop them. Uh, My dad is a pretty self-sufficient person. He's the guy who doesn't ask for help when he's lost, right? He has, trying to find his way somewhere. He's not going to ask for directions. He knows where he's going, always. (laughs) He gets the job done when it needs to get done. He doesn't ask for assistance. He'll figure it out. But In that season of life, between the surgery, chemo, and radiation, his body developed some serious physical limitations. He needed assistance with everything, just to walk around our house, because he needed to get up every day and move. He needed help bathing. He needed help, at times, even going to the restroom. And my mom was the one who cared for him during that particular season of life, those weeks and months. And I remember a day while in the midst of this, all of this going on, my mom sort of reflecting to me her experience about all that was happening in our household. And she said to me, I won't forget these words, she said, when I took my vows all those years ago, in sickness and in health, in good times and bad, I never envisioned it meant this. She wasn't complaining. She was not loathing her marriage vows. She was simply discovering what they really meant all along. You see, when we, our verbal commitments turn into a life lived, there's something quite profound that happens in the world. And this is supposed to be true, as true of our marriages and wedding vows as it is our commitment to Jesus. Our verbal commitments turn into a life lived and it has a profound testimony into the world about who God is and what God is like. You see, in a few moments, we're going to be taking communion together, and this meal serves as a reminder that Jesus himself not only taught, but lived and embodied the kingdom way of life that he taught his disciples to live. It serves as a reminder 
that Jesus himself was not indifferent to suffering in the world. This meal serves as a reminder that Jesus himself thought differently than the world thinks. It serves as a reminder that Jesus himself loved the world indiscriminately. It serves as a reminder that Jesus himself lived not for his own glory, but for the glory of the Father. And it is a reminder, it serves as a reminder to us that Jesus himself was entirely committed to the way of the kingdom to the point of death. And this meal is supposed to serve as a reminder and an invitation to those who take it now. Not only to consume the elements as religious practice, but to take into your life the very life of Christ himself. And as we do, we become the very presence of God in the world. And this is the decision we all get to make after hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Are we going to be the types of people who just hear and learn what Jesus taught, or are we going to be the types of people who hear and embody the way of Jesus. And the way Jesus concludes the sermon, I love it, is he doesn't force the issue. It's just an invitation. This is the reality of choice that you have now. And for me and my house, I want to serve the Lord. Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, The demand of discipleship and the invitation to come to you is great and we want to respond positively. We don't want to be those religious folks who hear and do not obey. We want to be those who in our lives and by our obedience become a living witness and testimony to your presence and grace in the world today. And as we do walk in faithfulness to your call, would you just continue to encourage and strengthen and equip us for the task that is ahead? We thank you, God, that you use us as agents for the purposes of your kingdom. May we discover and see your kingdom express itself in new and fresh ways as we walk faithfully to you. It's your son, Jesus, in your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to be receiving uh, communion, and I want to sort of talk about logistics here real quick. <laughs> so as the ushers are going to be passing out the elements, um, there is inside, in a single serving, two cups. And the bottom cup is the bread, and the top cup is the juice. There are some people who are germaphobes, and they don't want people reaching in and touching all the bread that everybody else is touching. And so when you receive the elements, just take both cups that are in that single serving, and you'll have both elements for you. Um, one of the things that I want to remind us as well is that you do not have to be a member of the church to receive these elements. Rather, we ask that you are committed to following in the way of Jesus for the first time or for the millionth time but I invite you to receive these elements and to hold on to them. We'll take these together as a symbol of our unity as the church. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward to distribute these elements.
pray. Holy God, we gather at this, your table, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captive, set at liberty those who are oppressed. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. And we gather as a body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts. Make them by the power of your spirit to be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can take the bread. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ poured out for you. We invite you to spend some moments in prayer or in singing with the worship team respond to the kindness of God that's been extended to you this morning. as you leave this place and are sent back into the world. In your faithfulness, may you be a witness to the goodness, grace, and love of our God. May people see you and glorify our Father in heaven. Amen. Go in his peace this day.